your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Our text, in addition, will come from John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. So you'll want to turn and, and put your finger in John chapter 6 as we have been studying through the book of John. And we continue on through the book of John, but the book of Matthew will be our scripture reading as it is a parallel passage to this very well-known story, the story of Jesus walking on the water. Really a, an account of four miracles that happens within this incident. Matthew chapter 14, and we will be reading from verse 22 to 33. Matthew Chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. The text reads, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save us. Save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks once again for your word. Your word endures. We, O oh God, would pray that you would illumine our minds and open our hearts, that the eyes of our heart might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. There was a young lady who was... Uh, sunbathing on the beach when a little boy comes up to her in his little swimming trunks holding a beach towel. And he came up to her as she was sunbathing and said, Do you believe in God? She was rather surprised by the question and she, she replied, Why, why yes, I, I do. Then he asked her, Do you go to church every Sunday? She said, uh, yes. Then he asked, do you read your Bible and pray every day? By this time, she was wondering what he was up to. And she said, yes. 
And the little boy sighed with relief and said, Well, will you hold my money while I go swimming? <laughs> Trusting people can always be challenging, especially in a world where there are plenty of scams. This past week, a friend of mine, I received an email from them saying that they were stranded in Africa. And there are telephone solicitors, phony salespeople, etc., everything that you can imagine. It's not surprising that we can be a bit cynical when it comes to trusting people. Trusting in things, well, that's not infallible either. Material things always don't hold up. I remember when we were in Uganda and we were traveling around, some of the roads there were in terrible condition. I mean, you can ask Jerry over there and Candace. They're full of potholes and they, as you drive along, really, it's about navigating around these potholes. And the potholes are not like our potholes here. They're more like sinkholes. And they fill up with large pools of water. It's no surprise when missionaries share about how their car is once again in the shop. And it's not as if you could take another road into some of the remote areas. You just had to drive in or through around them or whatever it may be. If it's hard to trust in people and sometimes very hard to trust in things, well, it's not surprising that sometimes people have difficulty trusting in a God whom they cannot see as well. D.L. Moody said, trust in yourself and you are doomed to disappoint Trust in money and you may have it taken from you. But trust in God and you will never be confounded in time or eternity. The disciples here in this particular passage needed to learn what it was to trust in God and not to doubt. To look to God and not to themselves and to see the power of God as God over all of creation You might recall that John's purpose here in this book, this book of John that we have been going through, is about providing proof, evidence that Jesus is God Himself, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, the very God who came to earth to die for sin, and by believing in Him, we might have salvation in His name. And it is critical for us to believe in Jesus as God, because other beliefs in Jesus is not the Jesus of the Scriptures. Here in this particular text, as you flip to John chapter 6, is the fifth sign, is the fifth sign that John chooses to elucidate in order to give strong evidence of Jesus' deity. We've already seen that Jesus changing water to wine in John chapter 2, the healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4, the healing of the lame man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, which infuriated the Pharisees and brought great opposition. And then last week we looked at the feeding of 5,000, really that's 5,000 men, but some 20 perhaps thousand people. The last miracle displayed Jesus' provision. His provision for the needs of people. And today as we look at the text in John chapter 6, verse 15 and following, we see the presence and the power of Jesus. The presence and the power of Jesus during once again a time of need. 
Because no matter what situation, no matter what problem you have, no matter what the storm may bring, Jesus is there. Jesus is in control. Do we look at the context of the storm? In verse 16, for when it says in John chapter 6, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And getting into a boat, they started across the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. You might remember that after the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 20 some odd thousand people, including the women and children, the motives of the Jews in verse 15, Jesus knew. If you look in your text, it says they intended to come and take him by force to make him king. Their idea of a Messiah was one who would overthrow Rome so that they might be independent of Rome. They wanted to make him king, and yet it was not his agenda. So he withdrew. He sent them away, and he went. He went up the mountain to pray. Matthew and Mark both note that they were made to go into the boat, these disciples of his. And undoubtedly, they were probably very excited after seeing him multiply, multiply the food of fish and loaves of bread to feed so many people. I'm sure that the crowd was enthusiastic and they wanted to be a part of the scene of bringing Jesus and their perception perhaps was also similar to that of the Jews. But Jesus made them. He made them get into the boat. They climbed into the boat at a late hour and there would be, as Mark would say in his gospel, a short trip to Bethesda. But when they found that Jesus didn't join them there, they went on to Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus didn't go with them. He went up to the mountain to pray. He went up to the mountain to pray after a busy evening of serving the Lord Jesus, serving the people, feeding thousands, tens of thousands of people. His priority wasn't to sleep, it was to pray. Perhaps it was to pray that the disciples would learn the lessons that he tried to teach them. Perhaps it was to pray and give thanks to God. Perhaps it was to pray to renew his strength. Likely for all of those things, whatever it was, it was the need for prayer. And if the Lord Jesus felt that it was so very important to pray after serving tens of thousands of people, don't you think that it would be for us to pray as well? He went up alone. His ministry that is according to the will of God. He went up to pray. To pray because... God is honored when we come to Him. Ministry that is according to the will of God. Ministry that is according to the power of God that God supplies with the motivation that God gives will be sustained by God. 1 Peter 4.11 reminds us of that. It says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. One who serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength that God supplies. So that in all things, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, Peter writes. Ministry that is done for other motivations or on our own strength become frustrating, unfulfilling, exasperating, unsatisfying. Lots of people who do not turn to God and pray don't find joy in their serving. Don't find the perseverance that it takes. Feels so much more like a chore when it is done not by the strength that God provides, but one who serves God. One who serves God and sees the privilege that it is to serve God renews their strength because the vision of serving God is there. The purposes, even behind the small things, whether it is to sweep the floors or to do yard work or to teach in Sunday school, to lead a small group, when the vision is clear that this is for the kingdom and the glory of God, there's a sustaining motivation that causes us to endure because it is be done for the glory of God. No matter what the situation may be. John Piper in his book, Future Grace, reprinted a letter by Carl Lundquist. He was a former president of Bethel College and Seminary. 1988, the doctors told him he had a rare form of cancer called mycosis fungiotis, which invaded the skin of his entire body and it ended his life three years later. But on the day that he found out from the doctors that this was his condition, this is what he wrote. That day in the hospital room, I picked up my Bible. When the doctor had left, I turned to the joy verses of Philippians, thinking one might stand out. But what leaped from the pages was Paul's testimony in chapter 1. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He continues and says, And I discovered that verse I had lived by in good health was also a verse I could live by in ill health. To live, Christ. To die, gain. But by every life I have, or every day, by death, it is right either way. So I simply trust God in His own way will carry me out with His will, which I know alone is good and acceptable and perfect by life or by death. Hallelujah. Seminary professor of mine would often remind us as students of this passage, and he would say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If dying is not gain, then living really isn't about Christ, is it? Do you see that dying is gain? The storm came. The storm came and these disciples, their very lives were at risk, and they needed Christ more than ever. In John chapter 6, Jesus shows His presence 
The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind, verse 18, and was blowing. And they had rowed about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. And he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. They set out from, for Capernaum, and they were, there was a storm, the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee set some 700 feet below sea level. And the Jordan Rift and the surrounding hills around there rise sharply to about 2,000 feet above sea level. And there is a sharp drop of some 2,700 feet down to the, from the tops of the hills to the surface of the lake. And it creates an ideal condition for a sudden violent storm for which the Sea of Galilee is notorious. The cooler air rushes down from the mountains into the slopes and strikes the surface of the lake. And there are squalls and the churning of the water into whitecaps. Dangerous conditions for small boats. And it made their small little boat, pushed it off course. It says in Matthew, a long distance from the land. In Mark, it says that they were in the middle of the sea and they were battered. And the, the, the disciples, it says in the book of Mark, were straining at the oars to reach the shore desperately. It was a violent storm, and they had been rowing for hours. It says that it's the fourth watch. Fourth watch that it means. They initially left, you see, between 6 and 9 p.m. at night. And the fourth watch would be between 3 and 6 a.m. You're talking about some period of six hours or more that they were on the sea, rowing against the wind, and they were tired and exhausted. Mark points out something fascinating in Mark 6. The parallel passage says about what Jesus saw. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch. Where was Jesus? He went up to the mountain to pray. He went up to the mountain to pray and He saw them. He saw them on the sea. This was no surprise to Jesus, the storm. He didn't gasp and say, my goodness, there is a storm. I'd better do something. No, all of nature is under the command of God. Nothing happens without the knowledge and the hand of God. In fact, this storm was brought on by God himself. It was part of the lesson that he had brought that these disciples might learn. He could have very well called the storm to stop right there, but no, he goes out to the sea. He walks on the water and he reminds them, take courage, it is I, do not fear. The lesson to be learned is that no matter what the danger may be, the comfort that God is there And we need not be afraid to be anxious or worried. Do you know Psalm 3? If you'll turn with me there, Psalm chapter 3 is a psalm written by King David when his own son, his own son Absalom, had turned against him. He had turned against him and he sought to kill him. And in Psalm chapter 3, David writes this psalm. Psalm chapter 3. 
It says in verse one, oh, Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him and God. These were the men of Absalom who had come to try to take his life. Absalom wanted to kill his own father. Many were saying of my soul, there is no deliverance from God. But then David writes, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. The picture is one of a soldier, because as a soldier, you would have a a shield. You would have a shield in your left arm, and then you'd have a sword in your right, and you'd march in formation. And the shield that would be on your left would guard the person on your right. And the person on your right, their shield would guard your right flank. And you would march in formation and you would protect one another. But David here pictures, oh, Lord, you are a shield, not just on my right or not just on my left, but all about me. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain, Salah. And what did he do? I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have scattered, shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. You know what he did when people were after him to kill him? He was able to sleep through the night. He was able to sleep and he lay down and he awoke. Why? Verse 5, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid. A lot of people lose sleep over things far less urgent than someone. Thousands of people out to take his life. A lot of people stay up because of anxiety or fear or worry over what if. When God has called us to place our trust in Him. Psalm 23, verse 4, a very well-known passage, says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Peace comes. Peace comes when we realize God is with us. When Jesus came out under the water, peace came. He said, take courage, for it is I. Do not be afraid. As Isaiah writes in Isaiah 26, 3, He, thou will keep him in perfect peace, thou whose mind is stayed on thee. When our minds are fixed on Christ, we have peace. Not anxiety, not fear. Do you have that peace? You trust in God, knowing that He is there. 
James Brian Smith writes a book, a book called The Good and Beautiful God. And in the chapter of his book, he tells a story about taking his six-year-old son to an amusement park. And while at the park, he and his son got on a ride. This little six-year-old and a teenager strapped them in to this ride. James Bryan Smith felt panic in his heart for fear that his son would fly out of the ride. And he writes this, quote, With white knuckles and gritted teeth, I prayed the entire 90 seconds for the ride to end. I looked over at Jacob who was laughing and having a great time. After the ride was over, he and his son sat down on a nearby park bench and Smith asked his son, weren't you scared? That ride was pretty wild. Why did you get on a ride like that? And his son said to him very innocently, because you did, Dad. That's the kind of trust. That's the kind of trust that we ought to have. Trust knowing that the Savior is there, that His presence brings peace, that He is power over all things, that He is a sovereign God, that we can sleep even if people want our life. For what can they do? And we can say, because you're there, Jesus The power of Jesus is shown when we look at verse 28. For Peter said to him in the book of Matthew, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat. Now, this was an experienced fisherman. This was an experienced fisherman. And even though he is impulsive, and even though he doubts and sinks, his response in climbing out of the boat was motivated, I believe, by a love for the Savior. He's often remembered, Peter, the Apostle Peter, for his impulsiveness. He says things, does things, and he acts in ways that are often carnal. People remember Peter, his faults many times, but to give him credit, he is the man who was there. People remember Peter's denial of Christ three times. And then the cock crowed and he wept in repentance, but he was the one who tried to be as close to the Lord Jesus when Jesus was arrested and taken away. The other disciples were nowhere to be found. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter was the one who suggested, Lord, if it is good for us to be here, if you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And when Jesus tried to wash the disciples' feet, Peter said, no, no, no. He didn't say it out of pride, but because of his own feeling of unworthiness. And when Jesus explained the significance of what he was doing, he said, Lord, not my own feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter was there. He was always around. And his love for the Savior was genuine. He wanted to be close to Christ. And when Christ called him, he said, come. And he did. I don't think that Peter had forgotten that there was a storm being a lifelong fisherman. But I think Peter had the idea that if the Lord wanted him to come, he could come across the water. Peter got out of the boat. 
He walked on the water and came towards Jesus, verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. Seeing the wind, he became frightened. He saw the wind and became afraid. Here was the problem. Nothing changed in the weather. There wasn't a sudden storm right there. There were already squalls. There were already white caps. There was already a wind. None of that changed. What changed was Peter had taken his eyes off of the Lord Jesus and fixed them on the problem at hand. When he turned his attention away from the Savior, doubt gripped his heart and fear commanded his attention. And with his robe and his sandals, he sank and began to be overcome by the waves. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And the Lord Jesus did. And he said, why did you doubt, you of little faith? How often does that happen to you and I? When so often a problem comes, it's a mountain of a problem, and all that we can stare at is how big that issue, that problem, that circumstance may be. And it commands our attention And we are swallowed up by the trouble that it causes and the trial that it may bring rather than seeing that Jesus is there and that He will provide a way to climb that mountain, to be able to drive and navigate around those potholes. We're fixated and we begin to doubt the love and the grace of God. Jesus cares. Jesus provides and Jesus has the power. He has the power to sustain us, to carry us through whatever the issue may be. For that issue is small to Jesus. We would sing a song sometimes and the verses are well known when it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We take our eyes off the Savior and fix them on the problem. We too begin to be gripped by fear and doubt. What happens next? Verse 32 in Matthew. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And not only that, John chapter 6, verse 21, another miracle. They were willing to receive Him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land in which they were going. The wind stopped. Notice what else? The disciples, they were astonished. They were astonished, it says. They were astonished. They were flabbergasted. Not because of the extent of the miracle, it says. Nor was it that the miracle was done, but there is a sad commentary. For in Mark's account, it says this. Verse 51. They were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. They had not gained any incident from the loaves, for their heart was hardened. They had just seen Jesus feed tens of thousands of people, and yet their heart was hard towards God. They had perhaps thought of Jesus like the other Jews did, that He was going to be King of the Jews and that He was going to overthrow Rome or that somehow He would fit into their agenda. They had not gained any insight. 
Remember when Jesus asked Philip, he asked Philip, how are we going to feed all of these people? I mean, the, Philip said, well, even, even 800 denarii, eight months of salary, right, might, won't feed all of these people, not even give them a snack. The disciples came and they said, well, why don't we send the people to the towns and maybe they can get a little dinner from people out there. But Jesus chose, Jesus chose to take a little boy's lunch to feed thousands of people. We're not to trust in ourselves. We're not to trust in our own money. We're not to trust in our own strength. And not to have pride that we are self-sustaining. That is what Abraham Lincoln wrote in a speech in 1863 when he made this speech. He said, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved through these many years of peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts, that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. Unquote. Is that what we secretly think in our own heart? Maybe as these disciples did. That we have grown and we've had success. Oh, we've studied so hard. We've grown a great job. It's because of how hard working I am. If I hadn't done this or done that, I would have achieved this or that. And we fail to bow each day before God to pray. To seek the strength that comes from the Word of God. Because of the pride of our own self-sufficiency. Leaving the truth that has sustained and saved and provided for us. Knowing God because of the hardness of heart. That's what these disciples had. When Mark says they were astonished because they had not learned the lesson. There was hardness of heart. But in the end they worshipped. Matthew 14:33 and those who were in the boat worshiped him saying you are certainly God's son you are certainly God's son this time around their heart perhaps was softened and they worshiped him which is the proper response of those who truly believe in the son of God the true christian worships and finds the provision of God and worships one author writes and he says, don't ever buy into the idea that God prompts his followers to do the uncomplicated or low cost. Sometimes God asks his children to carry heavy loads, as he did with the Apostle Paul. But even and often, especially under those backbreaking burdens, God's purposes are fulfilled. When our task is tough, the reward of knowing we've helped further His kingdom 
And better our broken world is all the sweeter. If you ever find yourself with a difficult assignment, the author writes, why not try giving God thanks for trusting you with something that needs your particular strength? He assigns tasks to the right person every time. He did it throughout history and he still does it today. As you walk through whatever pothole path he has asked you to walk, never forget the tough journey that Jesus himself once made. Christ was asked to bear the most difficult assignment of all, to lay down his life as a redemptive sacrifice for humankind. He chose to obey. And because of his obedience, I enjoy our redemption today. Life is full of problems. Life is full of difficulties. Life is full of whatever storms may come. But Jesus and His presence and His power give us peace. Give us peace. And when we take our eyes off the Savior and onto the problem, then difficulties become overwhelming. Fear and doubt grip our heart. Claude and Amanda Tackett, they were a typical young Western couple and they lived in Louisville, Kentucky. They were members of a church called Southeast Christian Church. He had recently completed law school and was doing well at his first job as an attorney. In January, January recently, Amanda, his wife, gave birth to their first child, Luke. And their future as a family looked perfect Then the present came crashing around them. Three days after giving birth to Luke, while he was still in the hospital, Amanda got out of bed and put the baby in his bassinet. Claude was asleep. But then he was awakened by his wife crying out his name. She was gasping, grasping the side of the bed, doubled over in pain, He hit the nurse's call button and the next minute the room turned into a scene right out of ER. The nurses took Amanda's blood pressure and she didn't have any. They made Claude leave the room. Within a few minutes, the doctors came in to inform him that Amanda had died from a pulmonary embolism. In layman's terms, she had a massive blood clot that lodged in the artery between her heart and lungs. Claude was left with a three-day-old son and no wife. And in March, Claude sat down with a reporter of the Louisville newspaper. He listened to some of the things. He was asking questions. Claude told the reporter, "I, I wish I could say that I was strong, that I never questioned God That I always trusted and believed, but it's so hard. Every night for nine months, we prayed that God would keep Luke and Amanda safe. Every night for nine months. Frankly, there were several days when I looked despair in the eye. But there's no way you can live like that. He looked at his tiny sleeping child in his lap and said, I have only one dream for Luke. It is the primary goal of my life. My goal is that my son 
would not spend a single moment outside of the will of God that when he realizes he needs a Savior, the next instant he will ask Jesus to come into his heart. I want Luke to see his mother again someday. Unquote. The goal of his life was that his son would trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. The goal of his life was that his son would receive Christ as his Savior for sins. Do you trust in the Lord Jesus? Have you placed your faith and trust in the one who can save? Or maybe you're a believer and you look at this situation that those disciples were in. Do you trust in God for whatever circumstance it may be? Employment or family or difficulties. Maybe it's health. Whatever it may be, do you trust that it is God who has brought this? That God has sovereignly foreordained that this challenge, He has assigned you to this task. He has called you to go through the storm that you might show the Savior in the middle of it. For He will provide peace. And He will provide the power to walk with you through it. For the Lord Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Fix our eyes on the Savior and not on the problem. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus when we cast our cares upon Him, for He cares for us. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give you thanks. Oh God, the difficulties that we face because of a world that is tainted by sin also taints our hearts. Causes us, oh Father, to doubt. We pray, Father, that we might fix our eyes on the Savior, the author, and the finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.